One of the um, things I like about at retreats, sometimes having these smaller groups, is that when somebody brings up something that's very challenging or deep or difficult, um, people are empathetic, but it also is this incredible giving of permission because it makes it a little bit more okay and less personal that uh, those universal forces Sharon described last night are kind of plunging through us all the time. Today, um, during the closing, one of the yogis described it like this. He said that throughout the day yesterday, it was a really tough day, and he thought he was dealing with sloth and torpor big time until he listened to Sharon and realized that every single hindrance was full-blown, in action all day. This is called, in the common parlance, a multiple hindrance attack, as many of you know. So I was reflecting on how here we are and we're in this really beautiful place, and to most of the people in the world it would seem that this is kind of like the pleasure zones. You know, we've come off and we have solitude and people that are like-minded and beautiful spiritual teachings. And little do they know how much we're suffering (laughs) behind the lines, you know. Uh, It's pain and pleasure. It's beauty and difficulty. It's the whole 10,000 joys and sorrows, as you all know. But I think it's important to acknowledge that it takes a lot of courage to come to a retreat like this. Um, if not ahead of time, if you don't know about how what really happens when you get there, it takes a summoning up of courage. <laughs> you know, the word courage means greatness of heart. It takes a great heart. The reason is, if we pay attention, we inevitably come face to face with our human predicament, which means we come face to face with the fact that we have this really strong conditioning to go around in this idea of separate selfness. We spend a lot of time in it. And if we're operating off of this sense of being separate, a separate self, That means that we have in play these wants to have our existence continue and to have pleasure and to be accepted and to feel belonging. We have a lot of very important wants that come along in this package of this separate self-sense. And inevitably, we won't get all that we want. In fact, the most basic want to keep on existing in this form isn't meant to be, because all life that takes form changes and dissolves. So if we're a separate self, we have to have the shadow experience of fear. The shadow of a separate self is fear, that we won't get what we want. And at retreats, what happens is we're paying more attention. So we're more aware of the grasping and the wanting and the fearing. The fear is the anticipation that something's going to go wrong. And usually it's the anticipation that we're going to be wrong. I'm going to do it wrong. I'm going to fail in some way. 
And so if we begin to become aware in our bodies, we find that our bodies are armored against what could happen. This is called the body of fear. It's basic armoring that's anticipating what can go wrong. Now, all life forms have this. I mean, all biological life forms are wired to, to scan for danger, any threat to their entityhood. But humans have it in spades because we're self-aware. It's much more complex and sophisticated. And out of our fear, we, we play out our fear in a lot more oh, varied pathologies. And we create more violence out of our fear. Our sense of separateness is so acute that we violate ourselves and others out of it. So I started by saying we have courage because we have to kind of face this predicament of wanting and fearing and become more awake to it. The other part of the picture is it's in our nature to both pay attention to the wanting fearing and to awaken by holding that in great compassion. There was... um, a yogi in yes, one of yesterday's group who was describing how you know she gets caught in the clutch of fear, but she has a theme song now from, I think it's Anne Marie, it's the name of the singer, and her song is The Other Side of Fear is Love. So you know, she just kept repeating it to herself. And in a sense, that's kind of the title of tonight's talk, Awakening Through Fear, Transforming Fear, because there's an alchemy that is really kind of the magic of our practice, which is that when we pay attention, when we pay attention with mindfulness and care, we transform our experience of who we are and what's happening in a radical and freeing way. If you take any difficult experience you're having and really look closely, you'll find in it Underneath it, within it, there's fear. And generally, we'll find that there's fear about it, too. So fear both generates the suffering, and then we add on fear about what's going on. It's everywhere. It's under our depression and our anger, judgment, judgment, judging mind. It's behind our overconsumption and addictive behavior and our busyness. It's what fuels most of our thinking. Most of our thinking is some way anticipating what can go wrong and planning and worrying. Human behavior has been described in general as fight or flight when we're caught in this kind of worry-fear mode, that either we're fighting how things are, fixing, changing, judging, or we're running away, numbing out, disappearing. So here's the metaphorical story for the evening. Metaphorical story number one. (laughs) Once there was a man who got so upset by the sight of his own shadow and was so unhappy with his own footsteps that he tried to run from both. Don't like what's here, and I don't like that I'm running away. But each time his foot hit the ground, he realized he was still taking a step. 
equally disturbing, he saw that his shadow never once fell behind. Not about to give up, he ran faster, 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 until he finally dropped dead. What he never grasped was that by stepping into the shade, his shadow would vanish. By simply sitting down, there would be no more footsteps. So, like the man in the story, we're afraid of that shadow, that something's wrong, something's going to go wrong. So we keep running. But we're also waking up to realize that running creates more suffering. So we don't like the fact that we run. We, don't, we feel cowardly when we sense that we're, we're in some way avoiding what's real, whether we're avoiding it by staying in busy thoughts or addictive behavior or whatever our way is. Real safety lies in our willingness not to run away from ourselves, not to run away from our experience, but rather to stop. And this is what we're training to do here, to stop and just be in the shade. In other words, connect with the shadow, connect with what's there, and to sit down, be with, be with what's here. Kafka says, you can hold back from the suffering of the world. You have free permission to do so, and it is in accordance with your nature, but perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. So our challenge in day-to-day life is that there's all sorts of unconscious ways that we hold back and resist. And as we come to retreat and pay more attention, we begin to bring them into awareness. Metaphorical story number two. This is a Zen story. Senjo was born into a family where there was an older sister and a mother and a father, but her older sister and her mother died in some tragedy. So, as she grew up, she spent a lot of time with the little boy next door, a boy named Ocho, and they played together very well, and her father, who really loved his one remaining daughter, used to laugh and tell her that someday she and Ocho would make a good marriage, sort of jokingly. But hearing this, they believed him, and in the course of time, their love for one another deepened. But because Senjo was very beautiful, there were a number of suitors who came to seek her hand when she came of age. Finally, her father called her to sit down in her small house, and he said, I've made a fine, fine match for you. This young man from several villages over, the son of one of the great families of that village, and a nice young man, and he told her all about it. And of course, she began to weep and was downcast and depressed immediately. So when the word was passed around the village and got to Ocho, he heard it and his breath stopped and his heart broke. He could hardly speak. So that very night he packed a few things and went down to the river and took a small rowboat and got in it to leave the village forever. He couldn't bear it. And there, in the moonlight, along the edge of the river, he saw a shadowy form among the trees. And she was running, and it was Senjo. 
And she called to him, and he asked, what are you doing here? And she, she just said, I, I knew you were going to leave, and I felt it, and I couldn't let you go without me, and I need to come with you. So she got in the boat, and they went together down the river. Finally stopped and got a plot of land and made a garden and worked the fields and built a house and had two children, family. And then five years passed. One day, Ocho came into the house and saw Senjo sitting by the table weeping. And, and he asked her what was wrong. And, and she just, all she could say was, I miss my father. I love him so much. He's my only family. And then Ocho confessed, too, that these years had been so hard because he, too, felt so much that he missed the village and, and their life before. And he said, let's go back. Maybe they'll take us in. So they got a boat and they rowed their family upstream, arriving in their village around dusk. They landed on dock near Sanjo's home, and Oshu decided he better go first. So she stayed in the boat, and he went to the door and knocked, and Sanjo's father answered. What do you want, he asked. Oh, father, I've brought your daughter back with two fine, fine grandchildren. Please forgive us for running away. The father looked back with very cold eyes at Oshu, and he was astounded and angry. I don't know what girl you're talking about. Since the night you ran away, my daughter, Sanjo, has been sick in bed and unable to speak. And Oshu said, no, no, she's in the boat. She's in the boat with two fine grandchildren. Believe me, father. And the father, of course, said, absolutely not. This is crazy. But he sent his servant nonetheless and said, you go look and see what's in the boat. So the servant went, and sure enough, in the boat there was Sanjo and the two children. He came running back to the house and said to the father, yes, he is there. She's there. Sanjo's there with two children, and she's actually on her way up to the house. The father, still unbelieving, shook his head no and strode into the bedroom where Sanjo was lying and said, Ocho has come back with another Sanjo and your two children. And her eyes opened in a new way that they had not in five years, and she stood up as if walking in a dream and walked out the door where her father followed her and down the road from the dock, who was coming up but the other Sanjo with two children. The two Sanjos meeting on the pathway embraced one another and became one. They returned to her father's house and made a proper family with her family and his. They came together and embraced, and she was free. Now, this is an old and traditional Zen story, and, and there's, there's levels to it. And there's the level of the broken heart and the mystery of coming apart and coming together. But in some deep way, what you can feel in it as you listen is it's a story of all of us when in some way we come up against what's not acceptable, what we can't deal with, the parts of life that are too much, and we either shut down or go away so that part of us isn't so fully alive. And when that happens, when we don't face and be with there's that kind of splitting off. We can't live fully. Like Senjo, we go down the river and go through the motions of living, but 
the very thing we went for, which is love, we don't get to experience fully. The essence of meditation is to, in a sense, counter-condition ourselves. We have this conditioning to leave, to fight or flight. And so our training and our practice is to recognize, oh, that's what's happening, and instead to stop, to stay with our life, to not leave, to really open to what's unknown and what's difficult and what's real. And because we get carried away, it's a practice of starting fresh again and again. Not to be discouraged, because we will get carried away by the conditioning to go down the river, to leave what's difficult. I began by saying it takes a lot of courage to be here. And it's because any true path of awakening our opening, is going to take us to the boundaries of what's familiar and comfortable. The way we organize our life is around staying comfortable. In the littlest and the biggest ways, we try to avoid discomfort and difficulty. And so any real path of paying attention is going to show us how we're doing that. Now, fear signals the boundary to what's acceptable. When we hit the edge of what's difficult, what we have not yet accepted, then we get flagged by fear. And it's also the territory where the deepest healing and transformation is possible. Because if we don't stay on that edge and open, what happens is we maintain that small sense of separateness. We never discover the freedom that's possible. Now, the challenge for us all is, like Senjo, is that because our conditioning is to leave, it's to recognize, not to go into a trance, but recognize when it's happening. And a lot of it's pretty invisible. I mean, we, it's very unconscious and habitual. When we're restless, we just do things. When we're um, in pain, we, without even knowing it, we shift our, our position. Not that we shouldn't sometimes shift our position, but that it's, it's kind of a reflexive way of moving through life to get away from what's uncomfortable. When there's fear, we immediately go into worry mode or planning mode or obsessive thinking rather than just sitting down and touching what's there. And we do it with each other, with each other, because we all, if we feel separate, have fear with each other in some ways. Um, we, it's called developing a persona. We have a way of behaving that presents what we hope will be accepted and covers what we are afraid will be rejected. Right? That persona, we all have that to some degree. I think the beings that we feel the most intimacy with, we have the, are able to let down the most of that persona. But we certainly in public have a need to appear a certain way. Have you ever heard the story about a driver who put a note under the windshield wiper of a parked car? The note read, I have just smashed into your car. The people who saw the accident are watching me. They think I'm writing down my name and address. I'm not. (laughs) 
sometimes are ways of covering things and pretending aren't even, we're not even intending to. I love these. Some of you have heard them, I think, but I'll share them with you because they're so much fun. These are actual statements found on insurance forms where car drivers attempted to summarize the details of an accident in the fewest possible words. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. (laughs) In an attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. (laughs) I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. (laughs) My car was legally parked as it backed into another vehicle. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. (laughs) I was thrown from my car as it left the road. I was later found in a ditch by some stray cows. (laughs) Last one. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. The interesting thing about retreats is that most of our um, overt, habitual ways of, of fleeing, of leaving experience, have been very gracefully kind of removed. I mean, there's not, we're not going to go to the movies or watch TV, and a lot, of, a lot of the ones that, of the busyness kind of realm, we, we're not doing externally. But it's amazing. Our minds just take over and go double time on finding them, and it becomes really clear. You get to really see how much you leave. How much what? How much you leave. How much you leave what's happening in thought form. Now, just to say, it's compassionate to do whatever we can to ensure more comfort, to decrease our pain, to find pleasure in life. This isn't uh, a talk about how, you know, stay with it all and never try to make things feel more comfortable. But meditation is training in having the capacity to stay here, to accept what is, and to discover the freedom and confidence that comes when we don't have to be running away. Because when we're running away, it becomes our habit. And we don't only run away from pain, We run away in the sense that we're not available for the beauty, for the fullness of what's going on right here and now. The challenge is that life is inherently unsafe if we have this idea in our mind that I'll stay here if it's safe. It's inherently unsafe if we think safety is not dying. Our safety is not feeling pain. It's also not fair according to our normal ideas on things. I mean, it's not fair in who might get this disease or have that accident happen or who wins the lottery or who gets to make laws in this country. You know what I mean? It's not always so fair. This was a little blip in the newspaper. It's called the Flying Cross, which is... um, These are medals for dubious distinctions. This is the flying cross to Percy the Pigeon, who flopped down exhausted in a Sheffield loft, having beaten 1,000 rivals in a 500-mile race, and was immediately eaten by a cat. Here he does this. He wins. 
He's eaten by a cat. The 90-minute delay in finding his remains and handing his identification tag to the judges relegated Percy from first to third place. (laughs) Now, you don't know whether to laugh or cry, right? (laughs) I really debated sharing that with you. Okay, the most unfair thing about life is the way it ends. I mean, life is tough. It takes a lot of your time. What do you get at the end of it? A death. What's that, a bonus? I think the cycle is all backwards. You should die first, get it out of the way. (laughs) Then live in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch. You go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You do drugs, alcohol, you party. (laughs) You get ready for high school. (laughs) You go to grade school. You become a kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little baby. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating. You finish off as a glint of light in somebody's mind. So we have this uh, fear about what's going to happen, fear about how life is unsafe, and this chronic tensing. And I really feel like one of the great kind of wake-up junctures is when we recognize how pervasive this tensing against what could happen next is in our bodies and our minds. Because our conditioning to tense and resist is so strong, it takes intentional training to stay here and to open some, to do what's been called taking the one seat. Many of you might be familiar with that phrase of just staying present and wakeful in the midst of all these different forces. So how do we do that? And we'll begin by saying, how do we approach it with our heart and our attitude? Um, For me, it's in working with fear. It's really helpful to keep considering how to work with fear in a very young child, because fear is so primal, and it has such a young feeling. And intuitively, at our best, we wouldn't punish or judge a child when they're afraid. We wouldn't tell them, you shouldn't be afraid, scaredy-cat, scaredy-cat, you're a baby, you know, that kind of thing. We wouldn't even say, be strong. You should, it just shouldn't be like that. You, we, we would not, in some way, make it bad that they were afraid. We wouldn't negate it. wouldn't say, oh, you're not really afraid of that. In other words, we wouldn't deny their experience. Hopefully, we wouldn't feed the experience by, yes, this world's an awfully dangerous place, and you can't trust anybody or anything. And, you know. So these are some of the what we wouldn't do. But the sad truth is most of us got all of those messages, either from the culture or our parents. We got the message that in some way it's bad to feel this way. Our parents don't, didn't want us to feel bad because it's hard for them to be with it. So they didn't want us to, so we were told it's bad to feel that way. And we were told 
You don't feel that. This isn't scary. This isn't dangerous. You don't feel this. And then, of course, we've been told you should be very afraid. There are awful things that happen. So when we think, if we go to the place in us that is young and intuitively knows what would we want from our parents when we're afraid, what most of us come to is realizing we we don't want to in any way be fixed. We just want that presence that understands and cares. That that is the beginning of healing and safety and, and true freedom to feel held in love and understood. And these are the exact two qualities of mind that we're cultivating as we meditate in working with our inner life. Clear seeing, to understand what's going on, and kindness, to be able to hold with compassion what we see. So let's just look at them one at a time as they relate to fear. The first one, this clear seeing, is really the mindfulness of fear. And it's what we're all doing here. It's what Sharon was talking about last night, being able to identify and recognize, oh, fear, fear, that's what's going on. The first step is to be able to name it. Now, for most of us, what happens with fear is that it's very global and primal, but it latches on to specifics, you know? It looks for targets. And so we feel this global fear, but it's right now it's about, will I you know, be able to get seconds or will everything be taken? <laughs> you know what I mean? Our fear, will the bathrooms be all filled? Our, you know, we, we get very specific, but there's this underlying kind of worry energy that's looking for a place to latch itself. Free-floating anxiety. So it helps to start with whatever the object is. I'm afraid of that I'm not going to look good when I'm doing walking meditation. People will think I'm not really inside it. Or I'm afraid that I don't really belong here, or that I don't really get what they're talking about when they say, recognize a name such and such. It all seems so amorphous. So to recognize the particular fears, and then begin to just name fear, fear. Sometimes we need to actually say out that we're afraid. That we actually need to say, this is scary. I'm afraid. One yogi today was describing how he knew that aversion was there, but it wasn't until he said, I don't like this. That he really connected with the actuality of it. So sometimes the the language or the words help us to recognize what's really going on. Part one, naming it. Then, acknowledge its reality. Now, what I mean by that is not the reality of the story that's making us afraid. So-and-so is going to reject us, so we're going to get fired. But rather the reality that, yes, fear's here. There's really, really fear going on. Parents, if they don't acknowledge our fears, we get this idea that this isn't legitimate. So it's not really fear. So we don't get to begin to deal with it. I had a client several years ago who, it took him a while, but described how he had a fear of all attractive women. Any woman that he found attractive, he immediately felt fear towards. But it took him months and months to say it because he thought it was so stupid and he thought it was so embarrassing and so ungrounded that it couldn't be real. And the turning point in his healing was just to acknowledge, yes, fear, fear. 
At the same time, interestingly enough, I was seeing a woman who was afraid of any man that seemed intelligent. <laughs> I, I didn't do, get into any matchmaking thoughts, but it was kind of interesting that it was going on at the same time. Justified or not, it doesn't matter what we think about them, fears are a real manifestation in the sense that they're lodged in our nervous system and our muscles and our body feels the realness. It said that lack of fear is not courage, it's brain damage. Really, we're wired to have fear. So, to name it and to acknowledge, okay, fear, this is really feels like fear. Now, what part of what's difficult is that we have fear about fear. fear. We judge fear as making us imperfect. If we feel fear, then there's something wrong with us, so then we feel more fear about the fear. You with me? So it becomes important to keep including in as mindful a way all the proliferation around fear. One Buddhist teacher writes, we want to be perfect like a circle drawn with a compass, but that's not necessarily perfection. The lopsided half moon, that too is perfection. We have these ideas that when the universal and difficult forces like fear come up, that something's wrong. And then we slap on another layer of fear, um, imperfect. Another Zen master, how he related to fear, he was asked, well, what do you do when fear comes up? His response was, I agree. I agree. I agree to the fear. I agree that it's here. Thoreau puts it a different way. He says, if a dog runs at you, whistle for it. (laughs) You get the spirit of it, though. (laughs) Okay, so the steps again. So we name it, we recognize and acknowledge real, and accept that it's there. We're not, when I say accept that it's there, that doesn't mean liking it. That just means, yes, this is here. It means that we stop running. We just plain stop running and say, yes, fear. The place where change happens is when we pause. When rather than reacting to fear, saying it's bad, saying it's not there, ignoring it, or trying to change it, we just simply be with. Now, this not doing is probably the, the essence or the crux of our whole practice. And some of you know this story, which I love. Um, Tom Wolfe, in writing the book, The Right Stuff, describes how in the 1950s, military test pilots were experimenting at really high altitudes. And they were flying so high, the ordinary laws of aerodynamics no longer applied. And their planes would go into these tumbles. They'd tumble end over end. And they'd be out of control. And they then play the tapes, and he had the tapes in this book, of what the pilots were saying when they went into their final dive. And that's the one that killed them. What they were saying was, I've tried this, I've tried A, I've tried B, I've tried C, I've tried D. What do I do next? Trying, trying. At those altitudes, in fact, they found out, the more they experimented with the controls, the worse it got. So, the solution. They found out, this is um, after Chuck Yeager, 
very famous test pilot went up. What happened to him is he got into these high altitudes, but rather than manipulating the controls, he got battered unconscious. And so he fell <laughs> unconscious for miles and miles, probably seven miles, until he hit denser atmosphere. And in the denser atmosphere, it was, he could apply skillful means and, and um, guide the ship and survive. So in the book it says, counter to all training and conditioning, the solution was you take your hands off the controls. You sit there and do absolutely nothing. You sit there and fall. You take your hands off the control because that's the only choice you have. So you understand that we can manipulate only so much of our experience, but if we want to touch real freedom, see what's happening, and respond from our heart, we have to stop the doing. That's the challenge. We're so quick to respond, it's so habitual, that this pausing, this not doing, becomes the only pathway back into presence. Now, in contrast to Chuck Yeager, when we do our not doing, it's not because we're battered unconscious, hopefully. In fact, in the moment of not doing, we can live in a very open and awake awareness. In fact, that's what heals. It's not doing, but very wakeful and very open. The idea is, sometimes the language I find helpful, is to make room for what's happening. We pause and we open to make room for what's there, to listen and feel and let the waves of experience float in our bodies and hearts. What happens is we get the something's wrong feeling, we contract, and then we have to again say, ah, make room, make room. And it's a real counter-conditioning. And we spend many years not doing that. Uh, This is Rilke. How dear you will be to me then, you nights of anguish, Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters, and surrendering loose myself in your loosened hair? How we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end. Though they're not really going to end, they're just seasons of us, our winter, Enduring foliage, ponds, meadows, our inborn landscape where birds and reed-dwelling creatures are at home. So we resist and resist until we find that doesn't work. And we realize that it's really, as Rumi says, it's in the pain that we find the freedom from the pain. Sometimes what I do when it's really, really difficult and I get that there's nothing, no fixing possible, is I just pretend that it's all over. I'm, I'm just dying and it, there's, just, there's just no hope in the normal sense of hope. So I give up. And then rather than fighting anything or trying to change anything, I just rest in the awareness that's noticing what's happening. But I have to first intentionally give up. It's not a giving up of resignation. It's relaxing the grip. As we deepen in our practice, we find that there's a real art to being with very, very strong waves of experience. And 
There's two ways that I understand this art, and one is, and the metaphor that helps me the most is that our being is an ocean that includes waves, and sometimes these waves seem very, very huge, and we think that's what we are. And these waves of fear sometimes feel like they're going to completely drown us. So we want to be able to rest in this ocean, but we need to be able to feel and be with the waves. And in terms of meditation, that means, in a way, we have to have both the wide-angle lens. Do you know what I mean by that? It's what Sharon described last night, realizing that it's not a bird, it's sky with a bird flying through. We need to be able to re-inhabit that spacious quality of awareness to have room. That's the wide-angle lens. And our skillful means for that? Relax the body. You might sense sky itself, because that really helps. Listen. By naming things, as soon as you name fear, you're not identified in the shape of the fear, because there's an awareness that's recognizing. So you relax back into that awareness. Sometimes just the simple instructions to feel what's there and let it float in awareness. These are all examples of the art of making a more spacious, kind of wide-angle lens perspective. The challenge is, though, sometimes we'll do that to avoid feeling what's there, and then get really spacey and spacious, but not really connect with experience. So part of the art of practice is also having the telescopic lens, right? Being able to really connect with what's there, to breathe in and feel it fully to feel it precisely and carefully. We train by doing that with the breath, but eventually it's to be able to feel fear as sensations that are changing and begin to recognize the truth, which is these changing sensations are not who we are. They're like waves in the ocean. For many people, if fear is strong, it can feel amorphous, and we take refuge kind of in the ocean, our moving away quality of experience, and it actually helps to investigate what's going on, what's happening. I ask myself the question, just what's bothering me? And then I ask it again and again. First, what's bothering me is I feel like I blew it, and da-da-da-da. And then what's bothering me is a deeper sense that I'm really not improving. And then there's a deeper sense that I'll never get it. I'll never wake up to who I want it. You know, and and on and on. And the deepest sense, if I go down way, way deep, is just this fragileness of of being mortal, of, of life coming and going. And it's all out of our hands, or my hands. So to ask that question in some way, what's going on? What's happening? What's really bothering me if it's got a flavor of fear? what's asking for attention. This is courage. It's not that there's no fear there. It's rather there's a willingness to stop, to pause, to not do or change, but rather to feel fully what's been pushed away. This is um, a man's spiritual experience in India in the 60s around fear, which I thought was really uh, well done. He said he was determined to get rid of his negative emotions, and he struggled against anger and lust. He struggled against laziness and pride, but mostly he wanted to get rid of his fear. 
His meditation teacher kept telling him to stop struggling, stop trying to get rid of it. But he took that as just another way of explaining how to overcome his obstacles. Finally, the teacher sent him off to meditate in a tiny hut in the foothills. He shut the door and settled down to practice, and when it got dark, he lit three small candles. Around midnight, he heard a noise in the corner of the room, and in the darkness, he saw a very large snake. It looked to him like a king cobra. It was right there in front of him, swaying. All night, he stayed totally alert, keeping his eyes on the snake. He was so afraid he couldn't move. There was just the snake and himself and fear. Just before dawn, the last candle went out, and he began to cry. But he cried not from despair, but from tenderness. He felt the longing of all the animals and people in the world to live. He knew their alienation and their struggle. All his meditation had been nothing but further separation and struggle. He accepted, he really accepted wholeheartedly that he was angry and jealous, that he resisted and struggled, and that he was afraid, really afraid. He also accepted that he was precious beyond measure, wise and foolish, rich and poor, and totally unfathomable. He felt so much gratitude that in the total darkness he stood up, walked toward the snake, and bowed. Then he fell sound asleep on the floor. When he awoke, the snake was gone. He never knew if it was his imagination or if it had really been there, and it didn't seem to matter. As he put it, that much intimacy with fear caused his dramas to collapse, and the world around him finally got through. What I like so much about that is you can really feel that if if we're defending against our fear, we're defending against the world. And that when we open and connect with fear, we connect with the whole world, with all beings. And it's really the kind of classic story of the Buddha, that the Buddha sat under the tree. He paused under this tree of life, the Bodhi tree. And Mara, all these arrows of fear and aversion and wanting, grasping, came at him. And he actually stayed still. He didn't run. He didn't grasp. And by meeting these arrows with an open heart, they fell as flower petals to his feet. And that, that classic image of meeting what's difficult and having this transformation into compassion is so beautiful and so true that when we protect ourselves so that we don't feel pain, that protection becomes like armor. It's an armor that imprisons the softness of our heart. We can't feel so tender. So like Senjo, who in running away couldn't feel her love and her joy and enjoy her life, our our practice is, is not to leave, to let the armor down some. I've talked um, thus far really about mindfulness, about this practice of staying and being with what's here. And there's an alchemy, a real magic that happens that when we connect with fear, we become connected. And what we become connected to is with life, 
We connect with pain, shadow, and fear, and we become more whole. It's important to recognize that we can't always do it all the time. I mean, it's, there are times that we just don't have the container or the balance or the resilience, the perspective, and we need to take a break. And so I don't want to turn this into kind of a a machismo, you know, if fear's there, you go for it, you know, kind of a talk, because there's a real wisdom in knowing that it's not about getting exhausted and making a muscle of courage. It's about opening as we can, and when we need to get support or take a break in some way, doing so, and then starting again. What really most profoundly gives us the room, this kind of telescopic lens, or reconnects us in a big way, is the second pathway that I want to talk about tonight, which is that of the heart. The Buddha said the truth of our fear is great. Fear is great. But the truth of our connectedness is greater yet. Our most profound refuge when we're working with fear, is in love. It's in the greatness of heart. During the first two decades of this century, a great number of babies under one year of age wasted away in hospitals and children's institutions, dying from unknown causes. Sometimes they'd write hopeless on the admission cards for these sick infants. There was a doctor at the time that used to circulate who happened to be particularly successful in dealing with sick children. So he'd go from ward to ward and he'd be followed by interns who were just kind of wondering at his magic. And one intern told this story. He said, many times we would come across a child for whom everything had failed. For some reason the child was hopelessly wasting away. When this would happen, Dr. Talbot would take the child's chart and scrawl some indecipherable prescription. In most of the cases, the magic formula took effect and the child began to prosper in days. My curiosity was aroused and I wondered if the famous doctor had developed some new type of wonder drug. One day, after rounds, I returned to the ward and tried to decipher Dr. Talbot's scrawl. I had no luck and so I turned to the head nurse and asked her what the prescription was. Old Anna, she said, and she pointed to a grandmotherly woman seated in a large rocker with a baby on her lap. The nurse continued, Whenever we have a baby for whom everything we could do had failed, we turn the child over to old Anna. She has more success than all the doctors and nurses in this institution combined. Earlier I was talking about how would we respond to a frightened child. The ultimate response to any frightened child is the mother's embrace. And we all have that archetype of care, of being the loving mother to the place in us which is frightened. So, so much of our path is really cultivating that quality of of, boundless heart, so that we can hold the places of fear, so there's room for what's there. And metta does that. We do it in a formal way. When we offer these phrases to our own being and to others, it reconnects us with that open-heartedness. We can use images, and this is true when we're working with fear. I have one woman several years ago that described how 
whenever she was afraid, she'd imagine that she was being held in the lap of the Buddha. Each of us has some sense of what the beloved is, of what the love that manifests in this universe is, and some way of calling on that and just letting ourselves feel held. And we can do it with each other. So the healing for fear is a sense of being held, but it's not really held by an other. What we're really being held by is a sense of belonging, the sense of really being a part of this world. For many of us, and I found this here on retreat, when things get really difficult, it's going out into nature and letting the earth and the trees and the sky and the sounds really hold our tears and our fears. That is so soothing. I have um, a very active kind of meditation practice with trees. I really do lean against trees and, and feel the earth and the life of the earth coming in a very protective and holding way. And I've, it's great feeling of comfort. And then I realize that the comfort I'm experiencing is not outside me. It's just the comfort of feeling the love of this universe. Many times, as those of you that have been with me in classes know, just the touching of your own heart or where you're feeling pain and fear is a way of the mother's embrace of connecting tenderly with what's real. We need to be touched energetically and physically. So remembering where love is, it's an antidote that also connects us with what's true. Remembering where love is. Our courage grows as we begin to face our fears more and more as we begin to include what's been rejected and what's been shut off in different ways. At a special Olympics track meet, a young girl had just won the 50-yard dash and was jumping up and down all excited. She yelled out to her parents, Look, Mom and Dad, I won. Her parents instantly burst into tears. At the awards ceremony, the young girl proudly stood there as a medal was placed around her neck. Then she ran over to her parents, who were crying now even more than before. The three of them hugged as the parents kept crying. A Special Olympics official who had been watching the whole scene became concerned and went over to the parents and said, Excuse me, is there anything wrong? Through her tears, the mother said, No, nothing's wrong. Everything's right. We just heard our daughter speak for the first time. This transformation through fear is a transformation of feeling small and separate, either victim or something's wrong with me, to the place of awareness and kindness. They can see what's happening and hold with with love, with compassion. I'd like to close with a poem by Rumi that describes this transformation. This is how a human being can change. There is a little worm addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly he wakes up, call it grace, whatever, something wakes him. And he's no longer a little worm. He's the entire vineyard and the orchard too, the fruit, the trunks, a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. Thank you.
Let's just sit together for a few moments. The sound of the gong was scary. It scared me. (laughs) I want to thank you for your presence and attention. And um, we have a half hour for walking. And then we'll come back and, as we did last night, sit some and close the evening formally with some chanting. Thank you.